in my mind, the biggest value that this law provides uh, is uh, that the new America Invents provide, Act provides is that it has given the patent office the ability to increase its revenue. Uh, and it's already been using that revenue uh, to try to make its processes much, much better and also much quicker, as we've talked about already. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Uh, this is Bob Ambrogi. Coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, my co-host, Jay Craig Williams, uh, is unable to be with us this week. Uh, before we get started, of course, we would like to take a moment to thank our show's sponsors, Clio, the web-based practice management uh, application, which is available at goclio.com. App River, email and web security experts. You can find out more about App River at appriver.com. And PC Law from LexisNexis. For a free trial, go to pclaw.com slash radio. Well, a, a year ago this week, President Obama signed into law the America Invents Act. Uh, some called it uh, the most dramatic uh, overhaul of our nation's patent system and patent law in decades. Uh, now, a year later, a number of the Key provisions uh, of the law are taking effect uh, this week, in fact. They are taking effect. So what are these provisions? What is this law all about? And what do they mean uh, for patents in the United States? Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to look at the, this law, look at the, the changes that are taking effect this week, and discuss what they all mean. Now, helping us do that today uh, is an expert in this area, Matt Krieger. Uh, who is uh, co-chair of the Patent Interferences Practice Group at the law firm Morrison & Forster in San Francisco. Uh, Matt Krieger specializes in helping clients find efficient, creative, business-oriented solutions to high-stakes intellectual property disputes. Uh, he also helps develop patent prosecution and re-examination strategies that protect his clients' patents and minimize clients' risks. Uh, he has served as lead or co-lead counsel in more than 15 patent interferences, including one groundbreaking interference confirming that the client was the first to invent a test to screen for HIV antibodies used in blood banks throughout the world. We'd like to welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Matt Krieger. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, and let me also uh, uh, introduce a, a returning guest to today's show, uh, to uh, our show, <laughs> Uh, Dennis Crouch. Uh, Dennis uh, is uh, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Missouri School of Law. Uh, prior to joining the law faculty there, he was a practicing uh, a patent attorney at McDonald, Bain, and Hulbert, and Berghoff in Chicago and taught at Boston University School of Law. He's worked on cases involving various technologies, including computer memory and hardware, circuit design, software, networking, mobile and internet telephony, 
automotive technologies, lens design, bearings, HVAC systems, and business methods. Uh, and of course, Dennis is is world famous, uh, at least within the patent world, uh, as the uh, editor of the very popular patent law weblog, Patently O. Uh, welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Dennis Crouch. Thanks so much, Bob. Well, uh, Matt, I, let me just start with you and ask if you can uh, kind of bring our listeners up to date on what uh, what the America Invents Act was all about uh, and, and what it did in, in broad terms. Well, there, it's a grab bag of many different provisions. So the ones that are going into effect this week, um, most importantly, is the beginning of a new procedure called inter-parties review, which I'm sure we'll spend a lot of time talking about. That's That's a big change. Um, there are other provisions that include things such as move, harmonizing a, America's patent law somewhat with the rest of the world by moving from what we referred to as a first-to-invent system. Um, you mentioned my experience with patent interferences. That's a unique American procedure that is now on its way out. Uh, that was a procedure for figuring out who was the first to invent when more than one group um, was trying for the same invention. America now is moving toward a system that will be like much more like the rest of the world in that it will determine these kinds of contests based on who was the first to make to file the patent application rather than first who was the first to conceive or, or make the invention. There's other provisions about changes to the best mode defense, prior use, false marking, but I think the big ticket items that people will be interested in in the short term include inter-parties review and post-grant review, which are two new procedures available to challenge patents in the patent office. And, and these changes are taking effect uh, over a kind of a staggered schedule. I mean, the, the uh, change from first to invent that you mentioned uh, doesn't actually take effect uh, in, until next year. Is that right? That's right. In March of 2013, that, that kicks in. And even then, that's a little bit misleading. What that means is patent applications that are filed on that date or later are governed by the new regime. But a whole slew of patent applications that are pending are going to continue to be um, governed by the old regime which is why I said we're moving toward that system. But it'll be, you know, 10 or 15 years before that transition is complete. And, uh, you know, as you say, there are a number of uh, specific aspects that we want to explore in more depth during this program. But, Dennis, I just wanted to turn to you and get uh, get your thoughts on, on kind of the, the high-level view of, of, of this act and, and uh, some of the changes that are taking place this week. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, in patent law, we've got a really interesting... Um, political dynamic going on, I think, uh, in that, you know, it tends not to be necessarily divided Republican versus Democrat, um, but we do get kind of market divisions uh, in terms of, uh, you know, most, um, what well, well, we've seen lately, right, these billion-dollar deals for thousands of patents where, where tech companies are buying or selling thousands of patents at a time. We've got kind of the pharmaceutical and biotech industry uh, at least the market leaders there uh, are really pushing for a strong patent system. Uh, and um, right in some industries, we have lots and lots of licensing going on. Uh, but if you look at patent infringement lawsuits, uh, the majority of those infringement lawsuits uh, have a particular setup where it is uh, some small company uh, that, uh, that might be called a, a patent assertion organization uh, some folks would call them patent trolls, right, where this small company is not actually making any product but is suing uh, one or typically uh, a handful or even hundreds of 
uh, of tech companies who are um, who are somehow allegedly using the invention, right? So so we have this uh, got this situation where lots of companies own lots of patents, but they're being troubled in court by these few companies that that just own three or four patents, but then are suing in court. Uh, and so right, I think that that kind of setup was one of the major drivers for for the whole patent reform act uh that um uh that these companies were getting worried about how the patent system was working uh and, and then as right as uh was mentioned uh, just a minute ago um right as as Matt said um there's also this move towards harmonizing our system with what's going on around the world um kind of the third dynamic that is really growing and we're seeing this both in the in the legislation and in uh, what's going on in court is that there's a growing number of kind of public interest groups and kind of pure patent users. So organizations like the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, uh, as well as uh, AARP uh, and, um, and, and, ho- and groups of hospitals and doctors have also all been showing interest, interest and actually doing some challenges of patents. Right, and so we have this kind of organization that's lobbying to uh, push patent law, push patent rights down a little bit. Right? And all this has gone into uh, building of this law and is going to also go into how it's interpreted uh, by the patent office uh, and also by the courts. Well, you mentioned this uh, issue of patent trolls, concern about patent trolls. And I, I think there's probably uh, a lot of controversy about, uh, you know, whether whether that needs to be considered a derogatory term or not, I guess. But uh, right. some yeah, of the, I tend to move some of the changes I that... Yeah, stay sorry. away from that name. But, I mean, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. this... Uh, uh, but it's absolutely true that um, uh, if someone holds a patent in the U.S., that patent is given a very strong presumption of validity. Uh, and right, if you, if you take that patent to court... And the and the defendant believes that it's invalid. Uh, to to actually invalidate it in court, they've got to provide clear and convincing evidence of invalidity, which is a fairly high standard, right? That's that's usually thought of as somewhere between um, a preponderance of the evidence um, and but something more than a preponderance, but less than uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, but but in actuality, right? In some cases, I think it's uh, you need even more proof than what you would normally have in beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, because in patent cases, you can never invalidate a patent uh, based on kind of eyewitness testimony. You've got to have uh, more than that in terms of you've got to have additional documentary evidence uh, that might be in addition to witness testimony and other testimony as well that comes in to invalidate a patent. Uh, and so, right, so it's a big, expensive process. Uh, and right, if you want to invalidate a patent in court, uh, you're going to have to uh, spend hundreds of thousands, if not uh, a million or millions of dollars in court fighting that out. Uh, and so and- is, that, uh, that, is that the focus? Uh, I mean, several of the changes that are taking place this week uh, create new procedures for uh, uh Challenging a patent after after it's been issued, uh, Matt. I think that's what you referred to before in terms of talking about interparties disputes. Uh, can you describe what those new procedures are? 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and that we've got these new uh, post-grant procedures uh, that the inter partes review starts now, uh, and a, a special review program for business, for certain business method patents, uh, also started uh, just on Sunday. Uh, and, um, right, and, and those two are kind of new options uh, for, um, for someone who is um, worried about a patent to, uh, instead, of, instead of waiting to get sued or, or filing some action in court, they can, they can ask the patent office to take a fresh look at it. Uh, and, um, you know, and in my mind, these uh, review systems at the patent office are quite expensive. And that it, right, it, for, for most folks to go through this, it really is going to be a uh, kind of $100,000 or more process to go through, uh, let's say, an inter partes review. Um, but it's still... Uh, at least one order of magnitude cheaper than um, what it would take at court. Uh, and in addition, uh, I, I think we don't know exactly how this is going to turn out, um, but um, but I, th I think that kind of the conventional wisdom is that uh, you have a greater likelihood of success, uh, that is, of getting the patent uh, invalidated or somehow narrowed if you go through the patent office. As opposed well, Matt, let me to yeah, let me just bring Matt into this and get yeah. and get his perspective on that. Matt, I wonder if you could address uh, your thoughts about these uh, these new uh, post issuance uh, procedures. So they they really are are separate issues. When it comes to interparties review, I think I agree with Dennis. The conventional wisdom is is I think many of us are quite hopeful that this will be a new and potentially very efficient and and effective procedure for challenging patents. But Dennis is also right. This is this is essentially a litigation matter. This shouldn't be viewed as a patent matter. This is going to be, I think, hundreds of thousands of dollars to take one of these things all the way through. Um, but at the end of the day, that that still is substantially less expensive than litigation. And and given some of the changes they've made, um, really has a prospect of being very efficient and effective. I mean, when I became a lawyer in or when I started doing patent cases in the 1990s. The only option available for challenging patents in the patent office was ex parte reexamination, and the, the normal advice clients gave was to never initiate one of those if you were opposing a patent, because you know the patent office would just sort of rubber stamp it, and you would end up with a patent that had been gone through two levels of review and was still still out there. But inter parties reexamination changed that. This was a new procedure that started in uh, 2001, and was somewhat better. I mean, you, the, there was a central reexamination unit. That was a different group of examiners who took a look at these patents and gave them a more searching review. But in a way, it became kind of the victim of its own success. It got overburdened and very slow. I mean, we've had inter-party reexaminations that have been going for five years. And so it became a very inefficient tool. And there was no real procedure. If there were procedural disputes, there was no way to resolve them. You would have to file a petition with the patent office, and it would sit there for months. So it became kind of a, a slog. The, the, one of the nice things about this new procedure is inter-parties reviews, instead of being in front of patent examiners, they'll be held in front of patent law judges, which are basically administrative law judges who currently handle the appeals and also handle patent interferences. And our experience with the administrative patent judges is that they are a very deep and good bench that provides a real thorough analysis. And now they've had the higher you know, 75 to 100 new APJs because of this new law. So we'll see how the new hires pan out. But they're certainly going to be trained by the experience bench that we think is good. 
And the statute has a one-year time limit. So from the time that you grant an inter-parties review, the statute requires the patent office to issue a final decision in one year. Now, they can extend that for six months, but the regulations the patent office just issued says that they expect those extensions to be rare. So our expectation is you're going to get a reasonably fast, reasonably inexpensive. Now, it is still, as I say, a litigation matter, but a much less expensive than district court litigation. And the hope is that we'll get a real um, thorough review and a potential for a, a better way to challenge a patent than, uh, than is currently available. In, in part of this uh, interparties review, there's also this, uh, I guess, separate procedure of, of a post-grant review. Uh, and, and then a, a third kind of review, which is this, uh, what they're calling a transitional program for, for covered business method patents. Are, are, are these at all, Dennis, are these at all directed toward the kind of patent trolls you were talking about before? The, the business methods, uh, the transitional program for business method patents in particular, is that something that, that's designed to, with this patent troll problem in mind at all? Well, so, uh, you know, a business method patent uh, and, um, and maybe software patents in general uh, have um, lots of detractors. Uh, and, there's, and there's kind of two main points that detractors make, maybe, maybe three main points. Uh, one of them uh, is that um, the, the, the uh, inventions being patented are not really new. And so, so, so there's a complaint that there are lots of these software and business method patents issued uh, that should never have been issued because they're not new, which is a, right, it's a requirement to have an invention that it be new. Right? In addition, uh, lots of folks say that these are the, that, that this type of thing, even if it was new, shouldn't be patented. Right? That business methods should just be something that's open for everyone to use yeah. in kind of a commercial marketplace. Uh, and so we shouldn't have patents that protect uh, that allow one person to compete with a business method and not allow another person to compete using the same method, right? And um, right, and then some people say, well, they're also all, almost always written in a vague way uh, because it's it's too hard to know what these terms mean when somebody uh, talks about uh, various signals going back and forth or computing something. What does that really mean? Uh, and so there's uh, allegations that the that the claims are indefinite. Uh, now. Uh, if we look at the inter partes review that we were just talking about, um, the only uh, kind of element that you can challenge with an inter partes review uh, is is whether or not the invention is new or not. Uh, and, and so you would look for prior art to find that it might have been done before. Um, with the um, uh, with these other options you discussed, the post grant review. Uh, as well as this uh, new review for business methods, uh, uh, the uh, the law has opened up the grounds to challenge these patents on uh, essentially every condition of patentability, uh, and so um, uh, and, and so it looks like you can challenge these uh, on grounds of what we call patentable subject matter. That it's not the type of thing that should be patented, uh, or you could challenge them on grounds that it's not that it's indefinite. Uh, and, and kind of there's a whole host of other grounds you can challenge them on. Uh, now, right, this, uh, this new review system just started on, uh, on Sunday, uh, but I think we have now five or six 
um, challenges to business method patents uh, that, um, and, and each one of those challenges uh, are on um, subject matter, patentable subject matter grounds, saying that, look, it doesn't matter whether or not this uh, claimed invention is new or not, uh, this is not the type of thing that should be patented, and therefore the patent office should uh, withdraw um, this patent from, from issuance, right? Reject its prior issuance of it. Uh, and so those uh, cases are going to be interesting to see how they go through. Now, there is a big limitation in the law uh, in that the, um, the only business methods you can put through this are ones that uh, relate to financial transactions uh, and, um, and that do not include any technology in the claims. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, but it, but it is a big limitation on what is meant by business method patent. Um, and, and then the other big limitation is that this post-grant review system uh, that's going to apply to all the patents uh, won't, um, won't really get started uh, until uh, also after March of next year. Uh, we need to take a real short break. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment with more on uh, the American Vents Act. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to talk to us about the role of security in cloud computing. Jack, what about security? Are there any ethical or security-related concerns that need to be addressed with cloud computing? We're starting to see the first ethics opinions come out on cloud computing, and the early proposed ethics opinions like that from the North Carolina State Bar indicate that there are no ethical issues relating to the use of cloud computing in a law firm, but that as with the use of any third-party provider, an appropriate amount of due diligence needs to be undertaken to verify that the provider you're using has implemented an adequate level of security and privacy precautions and is essentially taking due care with your confidential client data. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Tired of all the headaches of running your law firm? Want to spend your time doing what really matters? Then you need PC Law. PC Law from LexisNexis is the legal industry's best-selling matter, billing, and accounting software. It has never been easier to manage your law firm and serve your clients. Get back to doing what matters to you. For a free trial, go to PCLaw.com slash radio. That's PCLaw.com slash radio. Or call us at 800-685-2161 today. Promote yourself online with Legal Talk Network by becoming a featured lawyer. Your featured lawyer profile lets potential clients and referral attorneys get to know you in a five-minute podcast interview with Legal Talk Network, plus your photo, your bio, and your firm's contact info. Be part of the most progressive online legal network anywhere. Just call Legal Talk Network at 781-551-9960. That's 781-551-9960. 
or by emailing admin at LegalTalkNetwork.com. Be a Legal Talk Network featured lawyer now. Protect your firm's email with AppRiver. Send confidential emails with confidence using AppRiver's CypherPost Pro email encryption service. With CypherPost Pro, you'll control who sees your messages, and a patented delivery slip will show you when they're received and opened. There's no hardware or software to manage. You can cancel any time, and you get a 30-day free trial. All backed by AppRiver's phenomenal care. Visit AppRiver.com, that's A-P-P-River.com, or call 866-223-4645. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. My co-host, Jay Craig Williams, is uh, unable to be with us today. We're talking about the America Invents Act and some of the provisions that just took effect this week uh, with Matt Krieger, co-chair of Morrison Forrester's Patent Interferences Practice Group, and also Dennis Crouch, associate professor of law at the University of Missouri School of Law and editor of the popular patent law weblog, Patently O. Uh, Matt, I'm reading that introduction, wondering, are you going to have to change your practice group's yeah. name? <laughs> we actually have. We have. The group is now known as the PTO Trial Group, and we're going to be focusing on all of these new procedures as well as mopping up the interferences, which, as I say, may, may continue on for another 10 years or so. Well, there you go. Well, Matt, it's interesting. These procedures can run at the same time as litigation that's going on in district court. What's the effect of that? How does that work? So this is, right now, sort of if you go by the, the sort of how to defend a troll case playbook, Step one is file for inter-parties re-examination, and step two is ask the judge to stay the case, to put the case on hold while the patent office performs this review. Many judges have kind of soured on that, and and it's highly discretionary, of course, whether they stay the case. And I'd say many to most judges have come around to the view that that isn't efficient to stay the case because, as I say, sometimes it's four or five years before they get a decision. And when they get the decision, maybe they in, the case is just as much a mess as it was when they stayed it. But I think the hope is that with this new procedure, with the strict time limit, there is a, a greater chance that some of these judges can be persuaded to go ahead and stay the case. And, uh, and that'll provide an added benefit in concurrent litigation. Of course, there's also benefits in litigation aside from a stay. I mean, even if the case continues on, these inter-parties reviews and inter-parties re-examination even – put the patent owner in a position of having to respond to arguments about what the claims meant and whether the prior art that was being cited invalidated the claims. And it was sometimes difficult for patent owners to sort of be consistent. In other words, speak consistently to the district court and also to the patent office. So sometimes patent owners were sort of put in a box where they had to take positions in the patent office that they'd rather not, and then have to defend them in district court litigation. So there was always benefit in bringing one of these cases as a defendant in any event. The, this new, the, the changes uh, this week uh, mark the launch of this new entity called the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, which uh, uh, I guess replaces what 
what had existed before as the Board of Patent Appeals and Interferences. Uh, what's Dennis? What do we know about this? Is this is this uh, significant, or is this just a, a new name for an old board? Well, right. So the name change is required by the statute, and and so the patent office didn't just choose to do that, but um, um, but I think they were involved in drafting the new name, uh, and um, right and as. Uh, right. One reason for the change is that interferences are going away, uh, and but they still will be holding more trials, uh, and so right. So that suggests why the name is. Uh, now it turns out that the vast majority of the cases before this board uh, are kind of ordinary appeals that just involve a patent applicant asking the board to um, uh, to reject. Some, or, or to, to, to modify uh, something that a patent examiner had said, right? So the patent examiner had rejected it, and the patent applicant appealed to the board and asking for them to reverse. Uh, and right now, the board has something like 27,000 pending appeals in that form. And, and the name change has absolutely no impact on that. Um, but, um, uh, but it is going to have a big impact on what the board does, because... Um, because whereas before it was only a very small part of the board's job to handle interferences, uh, because there weren't very many of those, and those were really where they saw their trials, right? And now, right, it might be as much as half of the board's work, uh, or maybe even more, handling these trials. Uh, and so, right, so so internally, the patent office really sees this as a transformation of what the board's doing, really adding on this new important role. Uh, and um, and it may be interesting in that I, I think that may well um, kick back into and, and affect how these normal appeals go during ordinary prosecution, and that there may be more of a focus on uh, treating this board not like an examination, but more as a real appellate review that you might see in a, in a court. Uh- We've we're already running low on time, and we've only touched really on parts of what's happening this week. But uh, Matt, I wondered: are, are there other aspects of, of of the changes that are taking effect this week that uh, uh, that you consider significant? Well, I think there's a, we haven't really touched on post grant review, and I know that doesn't go into effect until March. But there's a few more aspects of it that I think are really important that people need to be aware of even now. One of them is this new procedure. I mean, in a way, this was designed to harmonize with Europe. And what happens in Europe is as soon as a patent issues, they have what's called an opposition proceeding. And for those of you who, uh, who in the audience who have advised clients or maybe work at clients that are international in scope, you're quite familiar with this procedure. As soon as a competitor's patent issues, there's a flood of oppositions that are filed, basically arguing that this patent should never have been issued. And that all culminates in a hearing a few months later where the patent typically is narrowed or changed or maybe revoked, but the end, but that all happens right after the patent issues. So now this new post-count review procedure, once it kicks in, is going to have a similar flavor in that it has to be instituted within nine months of the patent issuing. And uh, presumably, if there's multiple ones filed, they'll get consolidated and all heard together. Um, so one thing this does is for companies that, are, that aren't used to doing this, they're going to need to start monitoring a uh, competitors' patent filings even before they issue, keeping a track of what's going on in the patent office. Because once one issues, you'll have only nine months to decide whether to go or no go. And if you decide to file one of these things, you have to file basically your entire case. You, you put on evidence, which you know, de- declarations from your experts, a complete argument. That's not the kind of thing that you just initiate um, quickly. 
But the other, the big difference between our system and Europe is there is a very hefty price you pay for bringing one of these things, and I don't mean just the filing fee, which is also substantial. There's an estoppel provision which says if you bring one of these things, you are uh, precluded from ever challenging the patent in court uh, on any ground that you could have raised in the post-grant review. And because, as Dennis mentioned, post-grant review allows you to challenge the patent on essentially any ground, this means that unless you can come up with some very good reason why you reasonably couldn't have done so, you're going to be forever stopped from challenging that patent in any other form. And the Europe, European system doesn't have any kind of similar estoppel. And I think um, that's going to that's going to be dissuade many people from bringing one of these post-grant reviews, at least until we have enough experience with inter-parties review to become comfortable that the patent office is really the best possible forum for bringing these kinds of challenges. Dennis, what's the, what's the bottom line on this for you? Is this is the America Invents Act uh, going to serve the purpose that it was designed to serve, which I which I read here and there was to uh, streamline the ability of entrepreneurs to uh, and, and inventors to to bring their inventions to the marketplace sooner, to to streamline the patent process. What, what's your what's your take overall on these reforms? Um, well, so I think my bottom line is no. It's doing some interesting things that a lot of them are good and incrementally beneficial, um, but um, but I think it really is uh, kind of some incremental changes. It's still going to be incredibly um, expensive to uh, to enforce your patent. Still incredibly expensive to defend against patent infringement. It's still going to be virtually impossible uh, if you are manufacturing some kind of high tech device. Uh, to know whether or not your device is going to infringe someone else's patent. Uh, and, um, right, and this law does not clear any of that up. Uh, and, right, and so that's, that's kind of a big problem with it. Uh, and moving forward, I, for, in my mind, the biggest value that this law provides, uh, is uh, that the new America Invents provide, Act provides is that it has given the patent office the ability to increase its revenue. Uh, and it's already been using that revenue uh, to try to make its processes much, much better and also much quicker, as we've talked about already. And, uh, and, and with those two kind of efforts, kind of the hope is that, um, that we're going to get higher quality patents out and get them out more quickly uh, so, that, uh, so that everybody can kind of know their place, know what the law is, and know what they need to avoid in order to avoid infringement. And that kind of uh, informational benefit, I think, is is something that wasn't really helped at all by this law, but is sorely needed. Now, what about you? What's your uh, kind of bottom line take on uh, the changes uh, brought about through this law? Well, it does focus primarily on what's happening in the patent office. And I think we got some big help there. I think the inter-parties review and post-grant review has a real possibility to be game-changers on ensuring ways to let the patent office be uh, protective of patent quality. It doesn't focus so much on what happens after patent is- patents issue. And, and the problems you mentioned about non-practicing entities and so on aren't really addressed by this law. Um, we are seeing some major changes in the law coming out of the federal circuit that will try to kind of hope potentially even the playing field between companies and uh, that are suing and those that are being sued, including making it harder to get an injunction after trial, potentially limiting damages. Um, those are the kinds of things that would really alter the litigation play field. But despite some efforts to get that into this law, that really didn't happen. Uh, we're getting close to the uh, end of our time. Uh, 
our normal practice here on Lawyer to Lawyer is to give our guests an opportunity to share their final thoughts before we end the program uh, and also let our listeners know how they can follow up with them uh, if they'd like to do that. So, uh, uh, Matt Krieger, uh, let me just start with you and get your closing thoughts on this uh, and uh, let our listeners know how best they can follow up with you. Well, I guess my, my biggest piece of advice to those is if you advise those that are that are have intellectual property problems, th- this is a major change and this requires rethinking some of your processes. We haven't touched on false marking and other issues that are there, but there, there certainly are, there's enough in this law that you need to give it a thorough review for your clients. And if anybody has issues that they want to address, they can bring them, bring up with us at Morrison and Forster. You can go to mofo.com. We have an entire page devoted to the America's Events Act. And uh, if you want to reach me personally, you can email me at mkrieger, M-K-R-E-E-G-E-R at mofo.com, and I'd be happy to assist. Thanks a lot. Dennis Crouch? Great. Hey, uh, thanks so much for having such a great show. I really enjoy listening to it. Uh, I usually um, put it up on my uh, phone in the car and, and listen on the radio uh, as I'm driving. So I wanted to thank you so much for doing that. Uh, one, well, one last thing we haven't talked about that I, that I am kind of excited by, and I think it's a great new element that also just started on Sunday, is uh, the ability of anyone um, around the world uh, to um, to challenge a patent while it's still pending. That is, before it issues, there's a new system called a pre-issuance submission uh, where any third party uh, can uh, can send in some kind of document uh, that, uh, that, is, uh, that somehow might affect the patentability of a pending application. Uh, and, and so, right, so folks can monitor their competitor's application, right, or if you're monitoring some third party, you can just... Um, Right, you can monitor those and send in these documents as well as explanations to the patent office. And I think it has the benefit. I think it has potential benefit of helping the patent office do a better job. Uh, and right, and might even it, right if you're interested in this uh, in in someone else's patent, right, might help narrow them uh, so it so it doesn't impinge upon your own business. Uh, now uh, these days I don't represent clients at all, but uh, but if folks want to contact me, they can either go to my blog, which is patentlyo.com. Uh, or email me uh, at dcrouch at gmail.com. Well, thanks a lot. Uh, Matt Krieger, co-chair of Morrison & Forster's PTO trial group, as it's now known, and Dennis Crouch, associate professor of law at the University of Missouri School of Law. Uh, Thanks to both of you for taking the time to be with us today to talk about this topic. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me. And uh, that'll do it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. Reminder to uh, our guests that uh, they can... uh, now get CLE credit for listening to select Legal Talk Network programs. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and uh, click on the uh, West Legal Ed Center uh, icon there. You can also find uh, this podcast in the iTunes library uh, and uh, all of our past shows at the LegalTalkNetwork.com. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll be back next week with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.